Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me in the book of Galatians to chapter 3. As we continue our study, uh, wrestling through the truth of the Word of God in a, in a way that changes our lives. Really important that this grace that is greater than your sin is a grace that also extends to how we live our lives and, and how, how we manifest the testimony of grace to the world around us. And the more that the world falls into this evil age and day in which we live, the more difficult that becomes. I'll remind you again that uh, we will continue in the chapel afterwards our study on many of the sex and gender issues of our culture and how the Scriptures respond to them, answering a really important question that has arisen in, in evangelicalism, should a Christian attend a homosexual or transsexual wedding. What does God have to say about that? And I want you to know He's not silent. There are numerous things that, that He gives us to make those kinds of decisions in life, and it's a critically important matter in the culture in which we live. It is the truth of Scripture that always gives us a sense of direction and is a discerner for us as to what the world is proposing or even in evangelicalism what leaders are proposing held up against the standard of the Scripture. We, we, will, we will do that again today in the chapel, uh, not to belabor this point, but we're trying to teach you how to discern in these evil days. How do we know what's right and wrong? And, you know you're going to find out through a study of Scripture, it's not as hard as you think. There's a clarity to these questions that, that is screamed in the Scripture, and we're studying those passages. In this particular chapter today, in the first nine verses of, of Galatians chapter 3, Paul is going to change his tone just a little bit from the rest of the epistle up until this point in time. He talks about often brothers and, and sisters in the first two chapters. He talks about we, that, that, that unity of the church. He, he talks about us all being in the same place. And, and now he, he changes to a more stern tone and addressing a, a, a critically important issue. And he begins by saying, oh, foolish Galatians. What, what, a, what a change in his language. This is a big issue. And Paul is finding himself more than a little perplexed at where some of the Galatians were falling in the context of justification. Please understand that the whole of the book of Galatians is centered and focused on as a primary teaching justification by faith in Christ alone. How does one become right before God? How is one righteous before God. That is Paul's overarching thesis of the things that he writes in this text. And of course, you're, you're aware of the realities of these Judaizers who had come in and begun to, to add things to salvation, to add things to justification, to, to add works to the message that Paul had preached to them. And, and he begins in chapter 3, and, and, and three and following, there's some really deep and, and difficult passages and, and, and phraseology, but, but Paul is, is painting a picture of, of a concept of grace and grace alone being greater than our sin, 
and, and, and calling us back to God's intervening grace that justifies us and sanctifies us and then takes us out into this world to preach the gospel to every creature. As we begin this morning, we'll touch upon those key concepts. We'll dive into the text. And as we continue to work through chapter 3, he will make progressively deeper and deeper arguments for thesis, justification by faith alone. Father, I pray that you would bless us. As again, we open the book to help us to understand Paul and, and the context of what was happening. We would understand the arguments that he proposes to address some of the issues that have taken place after his journey and, and so many accepting the preaching of the gospel, Christ crucified for, for, our, for our own sake and the righteousness that comes through this forensic declaration that in Christ, through his eternal sacrifice, atoning sacrifice, has declared us righteous because of the works done on our behalf, works that were far greater than any sin that we ever experienced. To pray that as we keep that in context, we would understand Paul's words and, and we would understand the context of, of who he's speaking to, particularly as he changes tone here, to address a critical matter. And to get this matter wrong would lead to dire and serious consequences as he, as he calls them to attention, begins to explain again those things that he's addressed thus far in this epistle. I pray that we would grasp the depth and the intent and the meaning of this and understand that our faith is in Christ alone. It is given to us by grace alone. It is by faith alone, a faith that is entrusted to us by your Spirit that brings us to a belief, and it is to your glory alone. Help us to keep those things in mind as we delve into chapter 3, and if you would, just give us a glimpse of how glorious our salvation is because of Christ alone. Bless us. Delve into this this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If we go back to last week and even throughout our study, we've been talking about justification. Literally, justification means to be declared righteous. It is a legal, uh, a legal declaration. Forensic, we talk about that. Uh, Paul is saying that we are declared righteous we are made righteous. We are righteous solely through what Christ has done for us. And thereby justification is that aspect of the application of redemption being purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ in which God legally declares the sinner to be righteous in His sight. If you notice, this is an instantaneous thing. When we are justified, we are immediately in the eyes of God righteous, remember what Martin Luther struggled with, at the same time a sinner but righteous. It doesn't mean that we're perfected. It doesn't mean we do everything right. But in this legal declaration through the work of Jesus Christ and by faith, God looks upon us as being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
and we have said often, and we will say it again, God did that. You've done nothing, nothing, nothing. It is by grace alone. He has declared you to be righteous, not because of what you've done, but because what Christ has done in addressing your sin. In that Reformation, this was a critically important distinction from the church at Rome and Martin Luther returning to the Scriptures, most particularly Galatians, to understand and grasp the depths of this reality. And once someone is declared righteous, they are truly born again. They are born from above. They have life in Christ. They are righteous before God, and in spite of their battle and struggle with sin, there is a sanctification process, and sanctification is, is God setting us apart or gradually making us more and more like the one who has redeemed us, more and more like Christ. We are, we are drawn out of the world and worldly things, and we are drawn into Christ and, 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 and Christ and godly kinds of things. And through this process of sanctification by grace, just like justification, He is conforming us and changing us in our minds, in our hearts, and in our actions to be more Christ-like. Paul will address those things even in the next nine verses. So last week we, we said that where legalism fails to distinguish between justification and sanctification, legalism saying that you must do good works on top of what Christ has done. No, Christ has done it all. The definition for justification is that de declaration of righteousness is solely based on what Christ had finished on the cross of Calvary by redeeming those who were sinful. We must distinguish between justification and sanctification. We must not fall into this trap of God did this, but your only hope is if you do this. That's changing the gospel. And Paul addresses that. At the same time, antinomianism, no law or anti-law, severs the vital union between justification and sanctification, whereas legalism determines the gospel by insisting that we must add obedience to Christ's works. Listen carefully. You are incapable of adding anything to Christ's work. Nothing. Even after your salvation, Nothing. This is all a work of grace. If indeed we could add something to it, what does he say in the end of chapter 2? We nullify the grace of God. In other words, it is no more God that does it, you do it. And that is not the gospel. That's a perversion of the gospel. So we have to be very careful that we understand that obedience to Christ comes after our salvation. It can't be added to it. We also must understand that we then don't live our lives on our terms because antinomianism against law or opposite law perverts the gospel by subject, subtracting from the efficacy of Christ's work and denying those who receive Christ as Savior must also submit to Him as Lord. In other words, sanctification is that post-justification process where the Holy Spirit of God works in our life to do what we can't do by ourselves, to live obedient and be conformed to the image of Christ. Grace encompasses and covers every aspect of our life from the moment 
of our salvation until the moment we stand in His presence and see Him as He is. This is all a work of grace. Then do works not matter? Paul addresses that in Galatians. Of course. As we look at the relationship between those two things, we must focus in on the context of of Galatians and understand that they had confused those things. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, gone is the language of brothers, gone is the language of we, gone is the language of unity. O foolish Galatians, Paul is incredulous. He is unwilling and unable to believe that they got it right and now are being enticed to get it wrong. He he doesn't understand this. And he calls them out as being foolish. Now, that foolish doesn't mean that they're a moron. It doesn't mean that they're incapable. It doesn't mean that they don't have any ability to put this together. When he speaks of their foolishness, he is saying, you are neglecting cognitive reasoning and acting irrational. You know better. And how did Paul know that they knew better? Because they came to know Christ under Paul's ministry. Paul said, I know you know better. And I know you know better because you came to Christ by understanding that you did nothing, 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 and he did everything, everything, everything. And I don't understand why you're acting so foolish now and neglecting cognitive reasoning. We live in one of the most anti-intellectual ages of humanity, even in the church today. And we rest on our feelings as opposed to the truth of the Word of God. Emotions in, in many ways define us. But in our minds, we need to understand this justification in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone, or everything else goes sideways. So Paul says, I don't get it. What what is wrong with you? I don't understand. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul said, in front of you, I gave you a vivid account of salvation, the unfolding of the atoning work of Christ, dying on a cross for the sins of all mankind, and I brought you to the place arousing both your mind and emotions to come to the conclusion that you are in desperate need of a Savior, and His name is Jesus. So now, I ask the question, who is it who has this strong spiritual influence now, who's cast a spell over you, and now is saying that Paul's message was incomplete, you have to add works. We know who it was. It was the Judaizers that were creating this conflict. We know behind the Judaizers, it is the evil one, the deceiver, the distorter of the truth, Satan himself. For if Satan can undermine and confuse and alter the gospel, there is no hope for sinful mankind. So as he writes to the Christians and to those who are acting foolishly, he said, who is it? 
who's having spiritual influence and turning you against Christ and turning you inward and convincing you that you have a role and a part to play, and if you just do these things, you can be okay. As Paul talks about this influence, as he, as he talks about this confusion, he says, I, I don't understand why you're confused. The, the, this message was so clear of Christ crucified for your sins, salvation by grace alone. I, I, I don't understand it. John Calvin, when he speaks of gospel presentations, said, what the church needs is not more statues, but preachers who will so vividly communicate the gospel that when people hear the preaching of the Word of God, it is so vivid, it is so graphic, it will be as if they are seeing for themselves the very crucifixion of Christ what he has done for them on the cross of Calvary. That demands a sense of passion. That demands a sense of, of, of true truth. And that demands drawing a consequence for that truth. And if indeed you are going to fall away and not hold to Christ alone, Paul is expressing concern for their souls. Because that's not the gospel. It was never the gospel. And he knows that because it wasn't the gospel that he preached, the instrument that God used for the salvation of those in Galatia. They were being victimized by their emotions. Boy, doesn't that sound so much like the church today? Just having a conversation before the service people who've held the true truth most of their life and in the raising of their family until their kids walked away from truth and now all of a sudden the truth becomes really fuzzy. What, what happened? How does the truth become fuzzy after 20 years? It's either true or it's not true. Perhaps it's failure in the process of sanctification and your obedience. Perhaps it's speaking to emotions instead of the mind. The truth of the matter is we must make this so vivid and clear, and we must be so passionate in communication that we offer a compelling reason to grab this true truth and believe that it's true truth and cling to its true truth. And when you do that, your salvation becomes so much more glorious to realize you were dead in trespasses and sin. And God working outside of you made you alive unto God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He did that. If you understand that vividly, the first question that ought to come to your mind is, who in the world am I that I deserve such a thing? Instead, these Galatians who once believed that are now saying, we've got this, Paul. We're, we're going to do these things and make sure, make sure that our faith is real. By the way, the crucifixion is the most attested historical event in the annals of Greek history. No one denies the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Greeks didn't. The Romans didn't. Everyone understands that Christ died. They differ on the application and implications of that, 
But Christ crucified has never been called in question in the history of the world. Everybody acknowledges that Jesus Christ was crucified. Well, as we get into this next passage in verse 2, he says, let me ask you only this. There's a really important element here. Paul is introducing a, a form of rhetoric, a dialogical device of rhetoric developed by the Greeks to, to, to ask questions of clarification to, to, to those who are, who are challenging things that were historically and otherwise readily accepted. Asking t- questions rather than defending the truth It's a critically important skill set for Christians today. Let me connect the dots. First, Paul is dealing with this and the concept of of salvation and justification. But in most, in fact, every matter today, things that are so clear and perspicuous, male-female binary, created in the image of God, the reality of being contingent being, most things are so clear and perspicuous that everybody understands that. And then comes along these people who are somehow bewitched or with some strong spiritual influence who are questioning those things that are are readily understandable and readily available. And they start throwing questions at the believer, challenging your faith and saying, in essence, putting you on the defensive saying, "You, you have to answer these questions. That's a big mistake. So Paul says, listen, I'm not going to play this game with you, all right? You know the gospel. It was vividly preached to you, verse 1. So you're going to answer to me, why did you change your mind? One of the endless, repetitious, vain exercises that we get involved in in our faith sometimes is to let everybody put us on the defensive and then make us defend or, or justify or support what they're saying. No. What you need to do is turn to them, well, if you are taking another position, can you give me the reasons that you're doing so? This is exactly what Paul does. Paul says, this is clear. I know you knew it. You were saved by that gospel. No one misunderstood that gospel. And I'm not going to get into this debate about do we add works. I'm going to ask you, where did you come up with that in the gospel that I preached? Where are those objections grounded in the context of of, of Scripture and your life experience? So in in this this way, he is not defending the truth. The truth is the truth. It doesn't need defended. He is saying, you have to give me your reasons. So we ask a series of questions and the next numbers of verses. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith. When was it that you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? When you achieved a certain standard of obedience to the law? Or or did you get that Holy Spirit when you exercised believing faith? Now, it's a rhetorical question, but if they're going to change the rules and their understanding of the gospel, they have to defend that. There There is no defense to that. He is putting it back in their lap. By the way, why was the Spirit of God so important in being connected with the hearing of faith? Well, all throughout the New Testament, and and in Pentecost from forward, when, when someone was genuinely rescued from their sin, justified and declared righteous, the first thing that happened is what? 
the Holy Spirit came upon and indwelt them. They received the Spirit, the manifestation of genuine faith. So he's saying, when did you receive the Spirit? Was it when you believed or was it when you did all of these good works? And they know better. All throughout the Scripture, the Spirit and the divine invasion of that Spirit, the indwelling presence of that Spirit is immediate upon belief. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life. Paul describes that in the book of Ephesians. The moment we believe, in Him also, when you heard the word of truth, you heard truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in Christ, that truth, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit invaded your life, and that is a guarantee of your genuine faith, your inheritance, until you acquire possession of it and it's all for the praise of His glory. Paul's already answered this question. He's making them defend their objection. Sometimes we get sucked into these endless debates and battles. The person who changes the rules is the one who needs to provide the reasons. But they put us on the defensive and we fumble around through this dialogical rhetorical device, he throws these questions. Of course, they received the Spirit the moment that they believed, the moment they heard and faithfully were receptive to the Word of God, the moment, the moment the Holy Spirit initiated that personal faith to embrace the truth of the gospel, on that very moment they were declared righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. They were indwelt by the Spirit of God, and everything changed. Paul's taking them back to that gospel, and he's saying, you need to defend this. He says in verse 3, are you so foolish? He said, you know the answer to that question. You're not, you're not thinking very clearly on all of this. What has happened is that there are some of those in the churches of Galatia who are beginning to renounce Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. Now listen carefully. They weren't renouncing Him as Savior. They were just saying that salvation isn't in Christ alone. It's exactly what Martin Luther dealt with. It's exactly what we deal with today in, in legalism. Is it in Christ alone or not? You see, they want to hang on to their justification in Christ, but they want to dabble in Christ alone and add works to it. But that changes the whole gospel. And the world says, well, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. And it's a great offense to God that we would change the gospel, that we would alter the gospel and add ourselves in the middle of all of that. So as Paul's addressing these very people, that he was instrumental and sharing the gospel with, he's saying, you are foolish. This is a stupendous, disastrous folly with eternal consequences. Don't, don't do it, please. He asks another question. Having begun by the Spirit, he answered the first question, by the way, because it's so obvious. You received the Spirit when you believed in faith. So if you receive the Spirit, when you believed by faith, if that's the way this all begun, 
Are you now turning away from that faith alone, believing that somehow you can add to what God has already done? Are you believing that you can make God's salvation even better than it really is by your own actions? That's foolish. He's breaking down and dismantling their arguments presenting questions that they cannot answer to bring them back to the place of peace and comfort and hope in Christ alone. Are you being perfected by the flesh? In essence, again, we see some veiled language of justification and sanctification here and some of those dangers that we talked about last week. We'll get into it further into the text. The truth of the matter is, justification by, by the faith that comes through the Spirit and the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Justification is a work of God, and you've done nothing, nothing. Sanctification is an obedient life, but still dependent upon the grace of God. For both justification and sanctification are due to the Spirit's work, and they are the result of faith. So it is faith alone in which you come to know Christ as Savior, and it is grace by which that faith comes from. Why are you being so foolish? Did you, verse 4, suffer so many things in vain? What does he mean by suffering? Perhaps a reference to the persecution of those who have embraced Christ and become Christ's ones or Christians. Perhaps he's simply talking about experience. There's some discrepancy on how commentators look at this a little bit. But within the context and the questions that he's asking, I think it's beyond mere persecution. I think what he's saying, hey, listen, in the moment of your salvation… Do you forget everything that was going on in your mind at that time? What were some of those things? What were some of those experiences? I don't know. Try this. Remember when God opened your eyes to your sin and showed you how wretched you really were and you were overwhelmed that that sin was an offense to God and the wage of that sin was death? and eternal damnation. I remember that time where I was so overcome with this experience of conviction and remorse that led to being so overcome by the reality that God was speaking into my life and showing me that and drawing me through His Spirit to His Son. There was an experience about that. Do I rest in the experience? Absolutely not. But I don't deny it either. It's in a church smaller than this. It was kind of in that area right there. And I want to crawl under the pew. He's talking about me. I'm a wretched, lost, sinful person. I remember it like yesterday. Who did that? It was God who did that. That, that weight of conviction, that cognitive awareness that I needed the Savior that glorious understanding that God had taken care of it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if by faith I believed, it would change everything. Paul says, as you go back to the time of your salvation, the experiences that accompanied that, the truth that was so publicly portrayed, vividly portrayed, verse 1. Was that all, was that all in vain? Did that mean anything? Is that a big joke? 
Was that some empty experience? Of course not. Then includes this caveat, if indeed it was in vain. He's holding out hope that it wasn't in vain. And right now, there is some spiritual influence confusing their minds. And as they read this letter, they'll come back to the reality that our justification, our righteousness, is a legal declaration based on the work of Jesus Christ and the grace of God and a viva, a living faith that we believed the truth of the gospel. He's trying to bring them back through these series of questions. Does he, verse 5, who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you? Does he do so by works of the law? Perhaps he's talking about the signs and miracles that were a, a confirmation or an affirmation the truth of the gospel, and the genuine experience of both Jews and Gentiles who, who came to know Christ the Savior. Perhaps the works of the Spirit and the works of miracles are some of those very things that we mentioned, that, that conviction of sin and, and the weight of conviction and, and the opening of our eyes to illuminate us to the truth and, and that glorious moment where we express a faith given to us by God's Spirit being declared righteous through the works of Jesus Christ. Is it, do I understand this correctly? Does the one who did all of that, do it by faith or does he do that by your works? He does it by faith. A faith that is given to you by the spirit of divine invasion convicting you of your sin, the truth of the gospel, the crucifixion of the Savior becoming so vivid to you that you understand He died for you, that your salvation became glorious and you did nothing, nothing, nothing. The changing all of the terms and the questioning all of the realities and through this rhetorical dialogical kind of, kind of argument. He's saying, do I understand you correctly? He says in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Why is he introducing Abraham into the debate? It's because the Judaizers had confused their identity. They had confused what it means to be a child of God. And they made it about ethnicity. They made it about a creed. They made it about their culture. And when you make it about something other than Christ, it ceases to be the gospel. That's the problem here in the text. We're going to delve back into this as we continue through the chapter next week through verse 14. Very pertinent is the same argument that Paul makes in the book of Romans chapter 4 about ethnicity 
or faith by asking the question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Why is that relevant And the number one thing that the Judaizers wanted to add by works to their salvation was circumcision, right? So Paul, again, using the same devices, says, was that blessing then only for the circumcised, those who, who obeyed the law, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And this is going to be key to the discussion. Abram, when God counted him as righteous, had not yet been circumcised. So then how can the work of circumcision lead to salvation? Drawing them back to the Scripture. He's going to make an argument throughout the rest of chapter 3 from that Scripture. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. In other words, Paul says his faith is what his justification was grounded upon, not his circumcision. He continues, the purpose was to make him a father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him, Abraham, a father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, there's a really important lesson and argument that he's introducing here that deflates the Judaizers' argument, and we'll get into it a little bit next week as we go through this text. But what he is doing is challenging the identity of Abraham's children. And I'd suggest to you that this is exactly what Jesus did when he looked at some of the Jews at one point and he said, your father is not Abraham, your father is the devil. That's sobering. Paul's saying, hey, listen, which is it? Is your salvation based on you and your ethnicity, or your heritage, or your creed, or your, your color, or what, what? Or is your salvation and your righteousness grounded in Christ alone? And he's in a sense asking this simple question. It can't be both ways. Pick a side. And he laments that there will be some who are persuaded to pick another side. But he knows that he has so vividly proclaimed the gospel. And for those who experience that conviction and that awareness and that glorious salvation and that divine invasion of the Holy Spirit and the peace that passes, those people are going to say, this is crazy. Paul's right. We're foolish. We, we, know, we know better than this. But there's only one side. There's, there's not a third way. There's, there's one side. And Paul is pleading that they understand that it is in Christ alone, and he is making clear that the identity of Abraham's children is a faith identity and only a faith identity. You don't get to heaven because of your creed. You don't get to heaven because your victimization or your place in the culture. You don't get to heaven 
based on your ethnicity. You don't get to heaven because your parents were believers or your grandparents were believers. You don't get to heaven because you do this and you don't do this. You don't get to heaven on your terms. Our identity as Abraham's children is grounded and tethered to one reality alone, and that is our faith in Christ, the hope of glory. To deviate in any way from that confuses the gospel. What are you depending on today? Well, we're not those foolish Galatians, Pastor Jim. Oh, really? Been around enough to know that even we can be deceived sometimes, can't we? This father of lies can plant these seeds of compromise in our minds, cause us to stop to think soberly and righteous about this matter, and persuade us that, yes, you are all that, and this all comes down to you, when in fact the moment of your salvation was the moment in which you realized there was not a single thing you could do. Thank God, through Jesus Christ, He changed everything. It's an eternal matter that he's dealing with. Someone pass it away and say, no, it's really not eternal, just a gospel message. Even those who would turn to something other than Jesus are still saved. Wait a second. That's not Christ alone. That's Christ and something. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. I want to encourage you this morning. If you believed and received that gospel in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. There was a divine invasion that happened in your life, and the Holy Spirit took up residence, and God declared that your life was His, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And to you, Paul, simply saying, knock it off. You know better. You know better. And through a series of questions, you realize just how foolish you are and understanding your hope in Christ alone. The God who saves us keeps us because He saves us to the uttermost, and it's because of Jesus alone that we will stand in the presence of heaven one day before the throne of God. Are you thankful for that? Then why are you adding so much to your identity? sex and gender and ethnicity, and I'm this and I'm that. You know who you are? You're a child of the King. You're a Christ one. And our whole life, our whole life is enveloped in the person of Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. We are a child of the King, and that demands some things from us. In this world of confused identity, Paul is even addressing a critically important matter, and that critically important matter is your identity tied explicitly to what Christ has done for you. The one last caveat is we again remind you that the fundamental issue of Galatians and these first numbers of verses is justification by faith alone. So please, everyone, again, look up here. Justification oftentimes has been too tied to works even in our circles so it was your prayer or your walking an aisle 
or your hand or something that you did that you were depending on as far as the security of your salvation. Your faith is not what saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. You are saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we send a false sense of assurance to people even in our circles about something they did and are claiming makes them righteous. When there's nothing that we did that made us righteous, it was Christ alone. It is not your faith, it is the object of your faith that is the most important element in justification. Jesus Christ did that for you, and you did nothing, nothing, nothing. And the very faith that you exercise, however you exercise that, was a gift from God. Now, somebody stand there and convince me that you did something. This is a glorious gospel that saves to the uttermost. Don't be deceived. Don't rest your assurance on something other than Christ and know that salvation is in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And if that's the case, how can you as God people ever turn to something else? That is Paul's question. The answer is clear. Bless us, Father. Forgive us. So easy to take back. Misunderstand, be deceived. Even live the rest of our life thinking that somehow we're better than everyone else. Look, look what we did. Instead, may we heed the words of Paul and, and be reminded that we did nothing. And God, for whatever reason in His infinite, perfect, holy mind, looked at us when we weren't seeking Him. We didn't understand. He chose by grace to introduce us Salvation that comes by faith in Christ alone. I'm baffled, yet broken and humbled that I did nothing, 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 and yet you gave me everything. Overwhelm me with the story of salvation yet again. For your glory alone, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.